0: This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Nineteenth century Civil War literature tended to evoke romanticized images of glory and honor on bloodless battlefields. The real war, Walt Whitman famously wrote, will never get in the books. Only after World War I, many people assume, did American writers begin to offer realistic, cynical, disillusioned pictures of just what war is. Not so, says Cynthia Wachtel, author of War No More, The Anti-War Impulse in American Literature, 1861-1914. to She'll be our guest today on Civil War Talk Radio. The
1: World Talk Radio Variety Channel where the world comes to talk.
2: Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green.
1: Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome
0: to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking to you today from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. It's a you a typically hot September 17th Constitution Day here in the United States uh, in 2010, and we're uh, speaking of the Constitution and legalities, not speaking on behalf of East Carolina University or the state of North Carolina or the university system or anything else, just me. I'm sure our guest will likewise just represent herself today. Uh, it's the beginning of a new season of Civil War Talk Radio, just started a few weeks ago. We will be bringing all kinds of interesting guests in the weeks ahead. We've got... Uh, James Lowen, Peter Carmichael, James Ogden III, Brian Miller, lots of interesting people do up on the show. No live show next week, uh, I'll be attending a Lincoln Studies conference at Knox College, site of one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, uh, but be back in the, uh, the week following with more, uh, live presentations of Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, thanks to listeners who have been Supporting the show, both with their contributions, uh, financial contributions, go to PayPal, and uh, uh, if you send funds to the address civilwartr uh, at AOL.com, I'll be happy to uh, respond to that with a copy of uh, Did Lincoln Own Slaves, or a copy of All for the Regiment, both books I'm happy to send to you uh, as a a thank you gift for donations to the program. Uh, Also thanks to those who have inquired. As I mentioned on last week's show, I uh, ended up going home to visit my mother in Michigan who is recovering from a broken arm. She's home and doing much better. Thanks to everyone who asked about that. And uh, also some people have inquired how the Greenville Stars are doing this season. We don't have any Greenville Stars uh, girls, youth Soccer team news this year. Both daughters are engaged in different activities. Uh, both running cross country for their respective institutions. J. H. Rose high school here in Greenville, and Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. So, as the uh, cross country results come in, well, they're they're too too confused and abstract to to give you any results. It's an independent sport. Uh, we'll pick up with soccer news in the in the spring. Uh, running, however, having become the family activity, I've started running as well and have, uh, lost 25 pounds since, uh, the spring season of Civil War talk radio ended. So I'm no longer quite the stereotypical white, middle-aged, bearded, overweight, uh, uh Civil War enthusiast that I, that I was for many years. I'm not quite as overweight anymore, uh, don't quite represent the, 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 the type as I did, but uh, still hopefully can relate uh, to the vast majority of our listenership uh, nonetheless. Well, this week uh, we have uh, a topic that ties a little bit with last week's uh, where we mentioned uh, on several occasions John William DeForest, 19th century novelist, uh, who wrote about uh, a romance between a northern and southern uh, partisan that was echoed in real life by the subject of the book we, we discussed last week. Um, this week, we're looking again at uh, literature of the Civil War uh, with uh, our guest, who is uh, uh, Professor Cynthia Wachtel. Uh, Dr. Wachtel, are you there?
3: I am. Thank you. Uh,
0: thanks for joining us today. Um, uh, I don't think we've we've met any conferences or anywhere, but could we uh, go by first names to to move the show along? Would that be okay with you?
3: That would be wonderful. I'm Cynthia. Uh,
0: And and I will be Jerry, uh, saves the long pronunciation. Uh, Well, Cynthia, tell tell us a little bit about your background, uh, how you uh, got to writing this book and uh, where you teach and so on.
3: Sure. So um, my field is American Studies. I began studying American Studies while I was an undergraduate at Yale, and I ultimately earned a MA and BA in it at Yale and then went on to Harvard, where I earned a PhD in their parallel program, which is called the History of American Civilization. And I'm now a research associate professor of American Studies and also the director of an honors program at Yeshiva University in New York City. Um, which tells you my background, but probably doesn't tell you much about how I chose this particular
0: topic. Well, be- before we get to that, it's, um, long-time listeners of the show will know I never miss an opportunity to remind people that I have a Harvard degree as well. <laughs> uh, so I'll just throw that in there, uh, as always. Um, the American, uh, this American civilization, American studies, I'm trying to recall which... Uh,
3: so they call like it History programs? of American Civilization, which I've always thought is a bit of a misnomer, but um, that's what they call it.
0: The, uh, my recollection of that, I did my history PhD there in the 80s and 90s, and there was a limit on how many semesters we could teach uh, as history graduate assistants. And uh, it was much shorter than the actual time it took to get the degree. <laughs> so often uh, people would exile themselves, having used up their history eligibility in teaching. They would teach um am civ of course uh, uh courses uh that was the only connection i can recall having with the program though uh, uh but i i uh not to suggest that it, it, it was that was its only function to uh, support desperate <laughs> history students uh, uh, uh when were you there
3: so i was there in the 90s we might even have overlapped i was there for 5 years in the 90s and then finished up my phd while living in new york
0: Okay. I, I think I, my last year on campus was 93, so uh, I don't know if we were there at the same time. I think but, we
3: briefly uh, overlapped, but um, I don't know. Maybe it, maybe we saw each other across the yard.
0: It's very possible. Last week here at, at East Carolina, we had a speaker, uh, Eve Trout-Powell, who's now teaching at Penn, uh, and she got her doctorate at Harvard exactly the same time I was there for eight years, but in... Middle Eastern studies, so we were there eight years and never met each other till last week uh, it 's a bigger school, I guess than, than we realized, perhaps well, you were going to say how you got interested in this particular topic let 's talk about that
3: sure, so um, the book is war no more and it 's a study of american anti war literature and i 've been interested in all matters anti war I guess for quite a while, uh, certainly going back to my undergraduate days and um, I think a lot of this actually has to do with my paternal grandfather, who was a pretty influential fellow in my life and actually died at the age of 97 during my first year of graduate school. And he had uh, been a man probably even in his, uh, well into his 20s when World War I came around, and he was a pacifist. So I grew up hearing uh, this story, which he told, and he wasn't a man who was given to uh, talking uh, at length. He let his wife do most of that. But um, the story he told was that he was opposed to World War I, uh, morally opposed to it, and that when he was drafted, he told uh, the board that if they put a gun in his hand, he would shoot himself before he shot another man. And to me, that was a very powerful story. He actually ended up uh, working in a military hospital stateside during World War I. That was the compromise that they came to, because during World War I, there wasn't really a category for conscientious objectors. Those who were religious objectors were imprisoned and treated horribly, and actually their studies chronicling um, uh, the treatment that they received and how some of them actually died in jails. So um, my grandfather was able to uh, come up with this compromise. But to me, I guess that that really got me to thinking about um, anti-war matters, and in a way, I I guess you could construe this book and some of my other work as almost an effort to see where my grandfather fits into history, where was the anti-war movement at the moment when World War One uh, arrived, and what were Americans' attitudes about war? So uh, he also was very interested in reading and in literary matters. But he was very much a self-educated man, someone who had dropped out of school, probably as a young teenager for uh, financial reasons.
0: Well, that the, the book leads us to that uh, to that state of where America is by the First World War in terms of anti-war uh, literature, certainly, but uh, it. It begins with the Civil War. Much of it is, the bulk of it certainly is about Civil War literature. I thought it was interesting uh, because one does typically associate anti-war literature with post-World War I. Uh, but you, you argue otherwise. Uh, this literature the Civil War that, that one typically thinks of initially is, well, not necessarily anti-war, Uh, but but traditional, uh, romanticized, uh, uh, not realistic. uh, uh, Let's talk about where American writers were during the war, or even before the war, uh, how they expected war ought to be portrayed.
3: Sure. So in the early chapters of War No More, that's exactly what I look at. I look at how The war was conceived of by writers of the 1860s, by writers, poets, short story writers, novelists, and others who were trying to uh, express themselves on the subject during the war years and in the years immediately afterwards. And as you noted, they had a very uh, conventional uh, way of writing about war. They borrowed from a shared vocabulary, and that vocabulary was at once very idealistic, euphemistic, romantic, sentimental, sanitized. So uh, the way that the war was portrayed um, by popular writers and uh, uh, by uh, writers who enjoyed um, uh, uh, wide readership was of men walking uh, gallantly into the fray, bearing their breast to bullets, fearless, uh, without any moral ambiguity on the part of the soldiers or on the part of the civilians. Um, uh, was presented as a righteous war, whether you were fighting on behalf of of the north or fighting behind on behalf of the south, you uh, were uh, intended to be uh, represented as believing that the war was unambiguously right. So there was this uh, shared way of writing about the war. And as I argue, in one of my chapters, it had a lot to do with the lingering influence of Sir Walter Scott, who had wrote very romantic uh, novels in the early 19th century about the chivalric ways of the Middle Ages and of uh, various periods in the uh, Scottish past, and uh that these works had tremendously influenced Americans, and that Americans uh, wanted to read the Civil War in a similar vein, they wanted to uh, perceive their soldiers, their fathers, their sons, their brothers, their sweethearts as uh chivalric knights, as it were, men who were achieving heroism on the battlefield, men who were being ennobled by their battlefield experience, men who, if they died, as you noted in the introduction, died almost painless, bloodless deaths. So anything which deviated from that was quite radical and also was not well-received. And that's what I look at uh, in other chapters in my book, is how various authors and some very, very famous authors... Uh, Herman Melville, Walt Whitman, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and Mark Twain veered away from this conventionalized version of writing of the Civil War and uh, attempted to offer more graphic, more realistic, more morally ambiguous representations of the war.
0: Well, Scott, you mentioned, uh, is extremely popular. Um, what are some of the things he wrote and, and how, how did they get circulated to the American public?
3: So um, he started writing uh, in the early uh, 1800s, I want to say around 1814 or 1812, somewhere thereabouts, and um, there were, I don't think there are any copyright laws at that period, so basically you could pirate works. And it was said, actually, at the time that certain of his works um, were so popular that people eagerly awaited them, and that uh, publishers in entire cities were kept busy uh, publishing these pirated editions of his works. So for example, one of his works is the work Ivanhoe, and that's a tale of intrigue and love and valor, which is set in the Middle Ages, and the protagonist, uh, Ivanhoe, uh, goes off to uh, fight in the Crusades, he achieves wonderful things there, he returns um, have, from Palestine... Uh, and returns home in disguise and takes part in a two-day uh, jousting tournament and obviously does quite well there. And then, last but not least, uh, rescues a damsel in distress, and then he uh, ends up marrying his lady love. So it was this sort of work which influenced literary tastes of American readers um, throughout uh, Scott's life. He actually died in 1832, but also thereafter. And um, various historians have noted that... Uh, the southern soldiers that one of their uh, practically their favorite author during the war years or one of their favorite authors was scott so he had this vasting influence and all sorts of statesmen on northern and southern uh, if you look at their diaries of their youth and their diaries of the decades leading up to the civil war they say that they're reading scott they were rereading scott how influential scott was and uh, literary scholars have long traced uh, the attempts by other writers to imitate Scott, that he basically shaped the literary style of this generation, uh, that they veered towards romantic representations of war, uh, that they represented war in this sort of gallant, noble, uh, jousting tournament sort of way. And it's interesting, if you look at the poetry that was published in the 1860s during the Civil War years, there's almost no poetry which is about artillery or about rifles um, but there are lots of poems about swords, and it 's very anachronistic, but again, it represents or reflects this desire on the part of the readers and writers of the Civil War to see the war through uh, this sort of antiquated lens to have to read the war in the way which um, uh, aligned itself or which, which matched their own idealized notions of war you know so even if this wasn't the war that was being fought it was the war that they wanted to read and the writers knew that and so largely the writers delivered to readers um an uplifting inspiring version of war which again is quite understandable you know if, if you have a loved one in a war you want to believe that his uh, contribution is important that if he loses his life that he dies as a hero and so um this again is how the war was largely written and um what I trace in War No More is how authors dared uh, in their private and even in their public writings to challenge this, to go against the norm, to attempt to uh, introduce a bit of moral ambiguity to this war narrative and to uh, reflect the fact that soldiers on battlefields actually died quite gruesome deaths. And sometimes uh, the battlefields ended up in flames and sometimes uh, corpses weren't buried and sometimes people were mangled in quite horrific ways by bullets. Um, but again, those sorts of descriptions were not at all welcome in popular literature of the Civil War era.
0: As you're describing uh, Scott's success and popularity, it, it put me in mind of uh, uh, a contemporary literary series that whole cities wait for breathlessly that involves unambiguous good versus evil conflicts, uh, that involves fighting with uh, if not antiquated weapons, at least magical ones. Mm -hmm. The Harry Uh, Potter series? That's what I'm thinking of. Um, What we'll do now is take a short break uh, as the music comes up and come back in just a moment to talk more with our guest, Cynthia Wachtel, about War No More, anti-war literature uh, in America after the Civil War. We'll do that in just a moment when we return on Civil War Talk
1: Radio. ¶¶ the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
0: Not every author was willing to go along with the pre-war tradition of sanitized war literature. We'll talk about those who broke the mold when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
2: Every day, men and women worldwide seek lasting love relationships. They submit their profiles to Internet dating services. Some find success, while many flounder in pursuit of lasting love. In Relationship Matters, with Derek and Allison Young, you'll learn how certain mindsets and behaviors can either save relationships or sabotage them. Meeting people is only a part of the equation. Discover how you can find love that lasts. Relationship Matters is heard Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on World Talk Radio Variety.
1: You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
0: Welcome back. Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Cynthia Wachtel. She's the author of War No More, The Anti War Impulse in American Literature, 1861 to 1914. We talked in our first segment about the, the traditional portrayal of war and battle uh, through the Civil War years, uh, heavily influenced by Sir Walter Scott and the, uh, the Ivanhoe and other novels that he wrote. and uh, the poetry of the era. But uh, as we began to talk about, the war was not uh, in reality nearly as uh, glamorous or uh, bloodless as these uh, traditional writers portrayed. Uh, Cynthia, you said there were some writers who uh, who broke out of this, and uh, among those you write about, uh, uh, one uh, John William de Forest uh, was, was mentioned on our show last week. We were discussing a real-life North South romance that, that where uh, life I, I guess predated the art in that case uh, from Miss Ravenel's conversion. Uh, what about uh, De Forest? Uh, De Forest is perhaps the least well known of the writers uh, that you talk about. Who was he, and, and how did he break uh, start, start start to break this mold?
3: Sure. So um, John William De Forest was uh, sort of an unexpected uh, fighter in the Civil War. He, uh, had been sort of an unhealthy fellow before that and he, uh, volunteered, uh, in the Civil War and, um, headed a company, uh, from Connecticut. So, um, he joined the Union Army, uh, and, um, he wrote about it in a number of ways, uh, particularly about his times by Port Hudson and elsewhere in Louisiana. And he wrote home letters to his wife and he wrote for, uh, various periodicals of his time. Um, for Harper's New Monthly Magazine and The Galaxy, and he wrote the war novel that you alluded to before, which was published in 1867, entitled Miss Ravenel's Conversion from Secession to Loyalty. And actually that book has um, been referred to in sort of recent decades as, you know, the best lost anti-war literature of uh, or novel of the Civil War, but it was uh, panned in its own day for a number of reasons. So the point that I make about John William de in my book is, um, that he was writing in his capacity, um, as a captain of the 12th Connecticut volunteers, um, that he was writing about topics which weren't normally written about during the Civil War years, and he was often even doing this publicly. So, uh, so for example, he might write to his wife about the drunkenness among uh, the, the officers and the soldiers. He might write about malaria. He write, might write about ser- soldiers who were deserting the ranks. And these were, again, topics which would never have appeared in popular literature of the day. The conventional notion was that war was morally um uh, uplifting, that if you sent a boy off to war, he'd come back a man. So when DeForest wrote to his wife and wrote elsewhere that there was drinking in the ranks, that men came back uh, more corrupt than they had been sent away, that they were taking to vices, to swearing, and, and other vices uh, in the army, that was actually a pretty radical thing to be doing. It went against the grain. It went against the notion that war was righteous and that men behaving in war uh, behaved righteously. And... Um, uh, he also wrote both in his fiction and in his non-fiction some very very graphic depictions of war um, and he wrote about uh, in two instances about men who receive bullets to their head and he describes it very very graphically and he writes uh, in his novel and elsewhere about the horrors of field hospitals about men who suffer trend from uh, amputations under horrendous circumstances and the agony that they feel so um, again, everything that he was writing about war was very uh, out of sync with the conventional romantic sentimental norms of his day. It wasn't necessarily that he thought the union was wrong. He was a fighter in the union, but he was questioning the morality. He was pointing to the complexity, the moral complexity of war, and he was uh, telling certain veracities, that's a word that he used, certain truths, which other people wouldn't tell, um, he wrote, for example, uh, about the fear that uh, soldiers felt when they headed into the fray. And again, that went directly uh, against the notion that soldiers were fearless, were bold, were courageous, um, and that they had no uh, um, hesitation of go- about going into battle.
0: Uh, DeForest, I recall reading his works, uh, maybe it's undergraduate or graduate student, and just being really... Uh, really taken by it both the, the, the realism and uh uh things that we would take for granted today in terms of, of both of graphic descriptions and, and uh recognition of vices. Uh you quote the moment uh when he says the lieutenant reels into his, his tent and says, Captain, everybody's drunk today. Captain, the brigade's drunk. <laughs> uh you know, we laugh at that. We we sort of expect that, uh but this didn't play well when this book was published.
3: Right, he was a man before his times and again this is you know, sort of the broad argument I make in the book and that you pointed out in the introduction is that we think of war literature as being something which grew out of World War I, yet what I show is we can trace it back to the Civil War, if not even earlier, that we have these writers in the Civil War anticipating the works of Hemingway, the works of the Vietnam War generation of writers, the ones who pointed out the obscenity of war, the violence of war, the crudity of soldiers but we certainly don't associate that with the Civil War and again that's why I thought this work was important to write to show that we need to reconsider uh, the ways that Americans have written and th- thought about war. And as you noted, John DeForest is probably the least famous of the authors who I dedicate uh, some of the early chapters to. Other ones are Herman Melville and Walt Whitman and Mark Twain and Nathaniel Hawthorne. So if we think about these writers, writers who we revere, who sort of define what it means to be American when it comes to literature, and we reconceive of them as anti-war writers, I think it's really you know, a, a, a huge uh, shift in our, in our thinking about what it means to be a great war writer. Um, we have, all of a sudden, a new canon of war writers and a new canon of anti-war writers. And we can see in these authors' works, in the works of Deforest and Melville and others, um, elements which very much remind us of 20th century anti-war writing, um, because these authors are anticipating that cynicism, that irony, that realism that became so familiar to us. In the works of Joseph Heller, Catch 22, Kurt Vonnegut, Slaughterhouse Five, you know, and and so on in the 20th century.
0: Well, but does it undercut that argument that you find these things in people like uh, Whitman or Melville who who are part of the American canon, uh, uh, and certainly in Stephen Crane, and and uh, we'll talk about later, of course, about Ambrose Bierce. Mm-hmm. Uh, d- does it not? Uh, how does that affect the argument that that we haven't recognized this when these writers are, in fact, very well recognized?
3: Well, I guess that's my point, that we know them, but we don't know them as anti-war writers. We know of Herman Melville as being the author of Moby Dick, but actually in his own day, Moby Dick was horribly received Um, And it was actually his early sort of adventure novels which made him a great writer uh, in the eyes of his own generation. Um, And his Civil War poems were were ignored um, somewhere in the vicinity of 500 of them ever sold during his lifetime, 500 copies of his collection, Battle Pieces um, and Other Aspects of War. That was the title. So um, I think, yes, that's the point that we know these authors are very familiar to us, yet they're not familiar to us as anti-war writers um and you know in the current debates about what does it mean to be patriotic um who has the who can lay a claim to that word i think uh it's important to realize that someone like mark twain someone who we think of as very 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 patriotic also is very 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 opposed to war uh,
0: the um when you say these writers are opposed to war, um, there's, a, I guess, a, a double meaning or an ambiguity to, to explore here um, with someone like certainly DeForest and, and Bierce as well, who are both veterans who fought in the war. Right. Um,
3: I think that there's a spectrum, and actually Twain's sort of one of at the farthest end of the spectrum of these writers. I think the writers who I write about in the early part of the book, DeForest and Melville and Whitman, um, were conflicted about the war. They are all three northerners. They all three supported the cause of the Union. But they all three, uh, if we look at the writings, pretty much uh, understood that there was a moral ambiguity to war and that uh, war was inherently evil. And uh, this often didn't make it into their works, um, but sometimes we can see even in their public, published works. So, for example, Melville, in one of his poems of the Civil War era, one of his published poems, writes of the sanctioned sin of the Civil War. And when I think about this subject, I always come back to that phrase, the sanctioned sin, because it seems like those words couldn't go, you know, they couldn't be coupled together, yet he couples them together. So, you know, in, in, implicit there is that war is sinful, that it's somehow wrong, that it's morally wrong, that it's, you know, something which which is not allowed, yet that something about this particular war, this particular war with its particular a- aims and ends of ending slavery, made it sanctioned. So again, I think we can see uh, the uneasiness there. And it's another phrase that Melville uses, the conflict of convictions. And I think that that's a phrase that very well captures the sort of mental place of those three writers. Walt Whitman talks about being tossed to and fro in his own thoughts about the war and not quite sh- sh- being sure about uh, how, how to think of it. And in his own private diaries, he writes about the hell of war um, quite explicitly um, after Mel uh, Whitman went to Fredericksburg uh, and witnessed the battlefield there. He wrote in his own diary, Oh, there is no hell more damned than this hell of war. So, again, I think in Melville's use of the word sin, in Whitman's use of the word hell, um, in uh, DeForest, he at one point com- compares war to murder, um, and, you know, implicitly thus com- compares soldiers to murderers. They're all acknowledging that there's something very immoral about war and they're trying to reconcile that with their belief that the Union, though, is in the right in this particular instance.
0: Well, that, um, there's a book published a couple of years ago, uh, upon the altar of a nation, uh, by Harry Stout that, that challenged,
1: uh,
0: traditional American views of the Civil War as a moral war, uh, by arguing that, that it was, in fact, you know that war is inherently immoral. Uh, and I, 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 I tried to express this to him on the show. We talked about it a little bit. Uh, after, after hundreds of pages of demonstrating this and, and castigating contemporary Civil War era uh, clergy for not challenging the war, and you, in your book, also point out the, the sort of absence of the pacifist element at that time, uh, Stout in his last, uh, in the epilogue, then says essentially, but it did end slavery, so I guess it was okay, um, which I thought was intellectually uh, craven uh, to, to pull his, his argument away in the, at, the, at the end. Uh, and what you're, but that ambiguity, uh, the writers you portray, I think do it more honestly, They they acknowledge that this is, that they're terribly conflicted. Sanctioned sin is a wonderful phrase for doing that.
3: uh... Right, and Melville does use that phrase when he's directly talking about, you know, can Africa's blood ever wash away, you know, the the blood spilled in this war. So it's very much he's using it with reference to slavery, and he obviously knows the outcome of the war at the point that he's writing it. So he knows that slavery has been ended, but he's reflecting upon the cost of the war, the cost Mm -hmm. in terms of lives. So, yes, I think that they are more open about well, open to a tricky word. They're more honest about it, but what we see and what I, I show is that because there was no uh, tolerance for anti-war right works during the 1860s or even during the early 1870s, these authors often kept their harshest condemnations of the war, their uh, most uh, pained uh, ruminations about the war, to themselves. And so what I look at often are their letters uh, the early versions of works which were later published and I look at how the works changed, how certain dark, uh, thoughts were taken out of poems before they reached publication. So for example, that poem which I quoted from Whitman where he compares war to hell to damned hell, when you look at the published version of that poem, there's absolutely no illusion. Uh, to war as hell. It becomes a much more sanitized work, a work which, um, in many ways is, is very domesticized and safe. It doesn't have the immediacy of his immediate poem. Uh, so we can see these work, these authors, uh, of the 1860s struggling with the morality of war, but we can also see that they're often keeping their darkest thoughts to themselves. And, uh, Melville, And the forest actually even say, you know, I did not dare to say all I wanted to say about war. I do not dare to write what actually happened. So we can see them self-censoring in a way, um, maybe because they don't want to believe that war uh, is really as immoral as they suspect it is, or maybe because they realize that their readers don't want to read that. Um, That's too dangerous uh, to try to publish that, particularly if they hope to have readers. Um, so that's really the landscape of the 1860s, but what I show in my work is as we move forward in uh, the uh, decades after the Civil War, there gradually becomes uh, a time, really in the late 1880s, where it becomes more accessible to question war, and that's where we encounter those authors that you talked about earlier, Ambrose Bierce and Stephen Crane and others, who write sort of revisionist works about the Civil War, which are much more darker, which are much more dark much more graphic, much more brutal than the works which were uh, published and well-received in the 1860s.
0: Why are they able to do that? What changes?
3: So a number of things change. One is a broad literary change. Um, Literary tastes in general were shifting from Romanticism to Realism. Um, And war itself was changing, and this is really what I dedicate the second half of War No More to looking at, is the way in which war itself was becoming much more uh, mechanized, modernized, and industrialized in the late 19th century. So the notion that a soldier could go off to war, march into the fray, and do something heroic was getting very bluntly challenged by the reality of war, which all of a sudden was being fought with machine guns, was being fought with uh, dynamite torpedoes, was being fought... With a long-range artillery, the ability of an individual to gain glory on the battlefield uh, was being diminished by the reality of modern warfare. And so, um, I think authors were beginning to register that, and there was beginning to be a climate where psychological realism and realism itself were being more welcomed by readers. And the immediacy of the war, you know, had had, had retreated into history. So somehow, uh, by this point in time. Two decades or more after the war, there uh, came a a period when these authors were allowed to challenge um, the conventional notion, the conventional representation of the Civil War, and Ambrose Pierce was actually very, very well received as an author, um, although his works are really quite horrific and very, very brutal and point to the uh, horrible deeds that men do in war, deeds which in other circumstances would uh, lead them to be uh, arrested.
0: The... there was a line you have uh, quoted about about just that that the things you do um, uh, which put me in mind of the, the World War One era poet uh, I've forgotten who it is now a quaint and curious war is you'd shoot a fellow down who you'd treat where any bar is and help to half a crown
3: you uh, know that, there's also a poem about the Boer War which is actually also very similar you know, which are all making the same point, that if you met a fellow, you know, whom in any other circumstance, and Mark Twain actually writes this uh, in one of his works about the Civil War, that, you know, in war you murder somebody who in any other circumstance you would help out. You know, Indeed. if they were in need, you'd you'd come to their aid, and they would come to your aid.
0: So, uh t- tastes are changing. Uh Bierce, Bierce's work is well-received. Now, his, he, he, if anything, goes to extremes, his description of wounds, of... uh uh, of, of well, of, of the ways people died uh, are exceedingly graphic. Right. Um, so, uh, well, on, on that grim note, let's take another break. Uh, we'll come back in a, a moment and talk more about how American literature evolved in the years after World War, uh, or after the Civil War leading up to World War I in its portrayal of war. Uh, talking with Cynthia Wachtel, author of War No More. I'm Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio
1: the world talk radio variety channel where the world comes to listen and talk
0: Using modern technology, British soldiers at the Battle of Omdurman killed 11,000 dervishes while suffering fewer than 100 casualties themselves. We'll talk about how changes in the technology of war changed the way Americans remembered their own civil war when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Ready to revolutionize your thinking? It's time to learn about the clarity, simplicity, and speed of systems thinking and how it can be applied to every aspect of your daily life. Each week, tune in to Steve Haynes Live and learn one systems thinking concept. You'll also learn three simple, clear, and integrated applications that you can use instantly. You can apply them to your life, job, family, organization, government, and or society. Steve Haynes Live broadcasts every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Join Steve, and together we will make a global difference. Listen. Listen. The World is Talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk
0: Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Our guest today, Cynthia Wachtel, is the author of War No More, the Anti-War Impulse in American Literature, 1861 to 1914. We've been talking about how the portrayal of the Civil War evolved through the late 19th century, uh, from the sanitized traditional versions to the first uh, exposure of some of the horrors of war in the works of people like John William DeForest, or the more obscure works of Melville uh or Walt Whitman. But by the late nineteenth century and Stephen Crane and Ambrose Bierce we see war portrayed very differently. Um, and Cynthia you make the argument that a lot of this has to do with the, the change in the technology of warfare, that the the fiction, uh that the individual uh and his bravery, uh whether wielding a sword or, or what have you can make a difference on the battlefield uh, uh, evaporates by the late 19th century when high explosives and uh, machine guns are, are are making their appearance. Uh, mm-hmm. Does that also affect the literature of the times?
3: Yes, and I would make the argument that you know even the Civil War was in many ways a modern war. Um, it had the the officers who've been trained um, on the model of earlier wars didn't really understand how uh, new. Um, munitions would would change the way that war should be fought. So, any time during the Civil War, just about any time that you tried to have soldiers sort of march, you know, on an attack across an open field, they are decimated. And it took a number of experiments and a, and a number of very deadly encounters before that became obvious. And um, by the end of the Civil War, you had trench warfare, you had sharpshooting, you had uh, Sherman's March to the Sea, in which the civilian population was targeted. So war itself was radically changing even during the Civil War. It was moving towards a modern war. And again, once you're in a trench, it's very hard to act as a hero. Um, You know, when uh, Ambrose Bierce writes about um, his experiences at Shiloh, and he writes about um, sort of the horror of having to crouch as uh, the, the death rained down upon him from above, Um, He wrote, but to lie inglorious beneath showers of shrapnel, darting divergent from the unassailable sky, this was horrible. So, uh, again, the way that war was being fought, I think definitely, at at least eventually, had to affect the way that was conceived of and the way it was written about. Um, It's very, very hard to take someone who is crouching in a trench and possibly going to be killed by shrapnel and present that death as a heroic death.
0: Um, the, the, and and that, uh, Gerald Linderman argues in *Embattled uh, Courage*, uh, just this that, that by the end of the war itself, soldiers had realized you know, the only safety was hiding in trenches or fortifications, and the, the the myth of the individual having anything to do with the outcome of a battle was just unsustainable.
3: Right, and you also had very very large uh, armies and armies which were spread out, and frequent encounters. So it was a very different type of war than the Revolutionary War, for example. And as you move forward in the 19th century, and smokeless gunpowder was introduced, and new versions of rifles were introduced, and the Maxim machine gun was introduced, this only became magnified. In um, uh, You mentioned the Battle of Amdurman. So even if the Americans weren't participants in a particular war, a particular battle, it was knowledge which was shared. You could see the course that modern warfare was taking, and you could see the implications of this for an individual soldier. And what I look at when I look at the Spanish-American War uh, fought at the end of the 19th century, uh, in part, is the writings of Theodore Roosevelt. And we think about him as, you know, the great man who marched up San Juan Hill and claimed victory and then landed in the White House. But if we look more closely at his war writing, we see that even he was struggling with this a uh, fact that modern wars were more likely to be won by trained engineer men by trained engineers than by heroic soldiers and he actually made arguments for the need to uh, have a sort of a standing army of trained uh, men and mechanics because the mil- the m- munition the um, technology was becoming so sophisticated that it took intensive training to master it so again um there's this knowledge sort of the shared knowledge at the end of the 19th century that the future of warfare is more likely to be be determined by who has the better weaponry than who has the better men, that it's it's the uh, superior engineers who will win a future war. And the way that this is interpreted varies a little bit upon one's um, own ideology. Some people say great. Uh, America is a great a land with great engineers and we will win every future war because we'll have the great engineers and maybe even war will, become, will come to an end because people will come to fear war so much when it's so clear that we can war is so destructive, there'll be no more wars. On the other end of the spectrum are the anti-war writers who are saying, no, quite the contrary, we should be terrified of future wars because they will become apocalyptic. You know, we will destroy ourselves, we'll blow ourselves up. And you can even see that as early as the Civil War, surprisingly, um, you can see predictions of Apocalypse. So um, even someone as you, whom you might not think would be weighing in on this, um, as um, Henry Adams, who we think of as the author of The Education of Henry Adams, writes after the first encounter of the two ironclads, the Merrimack and the Monitor, he writes to his brother, who is a captain in the Union Army, quote, man has mounted science and it is now run away with. I firmly believe that before many, many centuries more, science will be the master of man. The engines he will have invented will be beyond his strength to control. Someday science may have the existence of mankind in its power and the human race commit suicide by blowing up the world. So, you know, it's a pretty eerie, pred- eerie prediction of the nuclear arms race, and it's a prediction which was written in 1862.
0: Now, coming from Adams, who you know ends up using seeing the, the dynamo, the the electric right. generator as a replacement of the medieval cathedral, it, it's right. it's maybe not not as shocking. Uh, you also cite Hawthorne, looking at the monitor and, and talking about the mechanization of war, uh, and Stephen Crane. You you show how his he portrays the soldiers as like industrial workers, mechanically loading and firing. Um, and all these things take away from the individual in war and 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 take away from the heroic. Uh, you You mentioned some authors who are less familiar, Joseph Kirkland and Frank Stockton, uh, which I thought that was very interesting to see how how these people portray uh, warfare and civil war, in particular uh, in a way that 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 ties it into the twentieth century anti-war tradition.
3: Right. So we see, again, in the late 19th century, various authors of various stripes weighing in on this question of war and the future of war. And some write sort of futuristic novels which have a happy outcome where the American uh, military will prove itself uh, with the help of scientists, scientists so superior to other would-be contenders that, you know, everyone basically, uh, you know, control of the world to America um, in a bloodless way. But again, at the other end of the spectrum, you have people like Henry Adams and others worrying that we will blow ourselves up, that uh, the future of war doesn't predict anything good for the individual soldier, that the individual soldier is going to be cowering in a trench, um, you know, and, and death can rain down upon him from beyond. And again, even someone uh, like Theodore Roosevelt, who was a proponent of what he called the strenuous life, um, admitted this, tacitly admitted this uh, in his own writings. He wrote uh about um uh the, the the way that war was becoming alienating. If we look carefully at his works we can see that. We can see these small concessions that uh he didn't like smokeless gunpowder. He didn't like the fact that he could be killed from afar.
0: You couldn't see the enemy any longer when they're fighting with the smokeless powder in fortifications a mile away. Uh you can't hit him with a sword. Now the 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 War in Cuba brings up uh, a question. During the Civil War, there's no public anti-war tradition uh, to speak of in in literature, certainly. There is anti-war sentiment, but it's anti-political anti-war, in that there are copperheads in the North who oppose the Union War effort. There are uh, Southern resistors who oppose uh, secession and and, and the war for various reasons. when we get, but but the majority in both societies is, is firmly behind the war and believes in the morality of of their cause. When we get to the war in Cuba, the war with Spain, there is a strong anti-imperialist argument.
3: Right, there's the anti-imperialist that, and anti-war movement.
1: That,
0: but they're not necessarily the same thing. I, I, I guess what I'm arguing is is that the anti. Uh, uh, you can have people who are opposed to war abstractly or as, as a, a phenomenon, yet support the Union cause or support the Southern cause, for that matter. Uh, when we get to like Mark Twain, perhaps, or more, more, or Melville, but when we get to the the war with Spain, we have people who oppose this particular war, and thus they're free to oppose all wars.
3: Right. So I, I think what you're saying, you know, are those, uh, is there necessarily overlap between the anti-imperialists and the anti-war contingents? Right. And yes and no. There are probably there are no doubt some people who are anti-imperialists but think that war is just fine in general. Um, but then there are also people uh, like the one uh, who I look at most carefully in my chapter on this um, Cuban and then also the war in the Philippines, uh, whose name is Ernest Crosby, who is a pacifist. Uh, he was an anti-imperialist, but he also was a pacifist. Had been uh, swayed by the writings of Tolstoy, and um, was one of the most uh, prolific opponents of uh, the war in Cuba and the war in the Philippines. and wrote several volumes of verst and the novel, all of which are stunningly anti-war um, and, you know, uh, unambiguous in their stance. So um, there is this range of views. Uh, but what interests me the most are those people who are both anti-war and anti-imperialist.
0: Now Crosby is very interesting. He he's again not well known today. Uh he wrote you say a 400-page war novel called Captain Jinx Hero uh which I assume takes after the uh, is a satire, in Ca- the title is on Captain Jinx of the Horse Marines uh, an old folk song. Uh but the, uh, the, the you quote his poem uh, in which he, he mocks Rudyard Kipling's famous uh, White Man's Burden. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stanza you, you have written here, uh, Crosby writes, take up the white man's burden, send forth your sturdy kin, and load them down with Bibles and cannonballs and gin. Uh, it, it, it's, it, I, I was delighted. It's something I'd never come across. Uh, was Crosby popular in his time? Uh, somebody this this forthright in his anti-war and anti-imperialist views?
3: It's a good question. I'm not quite sure how to measure that. I mean, he certainly was known. He was published. Um, I've read obituaries of you know, his obituaries, and you know they made it into major publications. Um, uh, he probably was a little bit of a fringe fellow, but I don't know. Honestly, I, I couldn't sort of give you a, a measurement of that.
0: Uh, I mean, so this, uh, because he certainly speaks in in a language that would be recognized today, um, although we 're running short on time, let me throw out one more big question uh, sure. uh, World War one is is often seen in literature as as the watershed between an age of, of sincerity and victorian uh, values in in in, in writing uh, uh, and and an age of cynicism of irony of uh, uh, modern humor uh, and and certainly in, in you compare the pre war you know the charge of the light brigade in british poetry to wilfred owen uh, uh you can see this enormous change in the way people wrote about war but you argue here that 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 change is less visible in america that hemingway is certainly modern but we've already got that in in early melville and crane and, and Bierce. beers uh, is that an accurate uh, summation of what you're arguing here it's a
3: very accurate summation. My point is that we have this miscon- misperception of World War I as this uh, major uh, sea change, and perhaps that's true for England and for, the Europe- and for European countries, but it's not the case in America. That if we look carefully, we can see these anti-war writings being written in the full 50 years before World War I, and that in fact, uh, the pacifist movement had never been stronger than on the eve of World War I. Um, from the time of the war in Cuba to the time of uh, America's involvement in World War I, pacifism was hugely popular in America. And in the early years of the 20th century, a great number of pacifist societies were formed, um, things like the New York Peace Society, the American School of Peace League, the Chicago Peace School, the World Peace Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation for International Peace, and I could go on, and very, very prominent American citizens, including the former president of, uh, of uh, Harvard University and others, were uh, known members, you know, were proud to be members of these peace organizations. So to see World War I as this major uh, point of change is to misunderstand uh, the literary legacy of the period from uh, the start of the Civil War to the start of World War I. Um, anti-war literature had been gaining steadily in favor in America. it had been gaining critical and popular acceptance if it wasn't universally read or universally accepted it was established um, irony uh, you know and, and the elements which we picked up uh, on uh, or would come to, uh, you know, become associated with the post-World War I writers were very much present in these earlier works, as we saw in the work of Ernest Crosby, as we saw in the work of uh, Herman Melville, as we saw, you know, uh, in, in so many of these authors' works from these decades following, you know, the the first uh, gunshot uh, attack at Fort Sumter.
0: So, in many ways, the Civil War is our, our watershed. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time, as always happens too soon on the show. But, Cynthia, thank you so much for being with us today.
3: It's been my pleasure. Thank you very, very much.
0: Listeners, you'll want to take a look at War No More, the Anti-War Impulse in American Literature, 1861 to 1914. And, listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.